Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello and welcome. My name is Jacob Steele, the events manager for Banyan Books and Sound. Today we're delighted to be hosting Bill Arnott, discussing his books Gone Viking 1 and Gone Viking 2. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging that although we have uh, participants joining from around the world, the physical location of Banyan Books is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Bill Arnott is a songwriter, poet, and author of the best-selling uh, travelogue Gone Viking, A Travel Saga, and Gone Viking 2, Beyond Boundaries, as well as Drama Mania and Wonderful Magical Words. His work has been published in literary journals in Canada, the US, UK, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And his column, Bill Arnott's Beat, is a feature in several magazines. Bill has received awards for prose, poetry, and songwriting, and is the creator of Bill's Artist Showcase. For his eight-year Gone Viking expedition, he was awarded a fellowship in London's Royal Geographical Society. This evening, he'll be discussing his Gone Viking series, which guides us on an epic literary odyssey following history's most feared and misunderstood voyagers, the Vikings. The series has been described as perfect books for the armchair explorer. You can learn more about his work at billarnettaps.wordpress.com. So uh, without further ado, we're delighted to welcome Bill Arnett. Thanks for coming. Jacob, thank you very much for having uh, me and uh, my appreciation to Banyan Books and Sound, one of my favorite stores, as you said, in the Kitsilano region, a uh, community or neighborhood of Vancouver. And uh, I'm also uh, in Vancouver, uh, just across one of our many bridges. And uh, this is Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh land, where I'm broadcasting from as well in a high rise in downtown Vancouver. We were visiting uh, before uh, the presentation and I was saying to Jacob how excited I am my wife and I to be moving back to the Kitsilano uh, region of Vancouver and uh, yeah a huge privilege to be chatting with you tonight about the Gone Viking travel logs uh, and I've been uh, delighted that we've got uh, some literary awards the books uh, are part of Banyan Books gorgeous uh, uh, selection of travel logs and travel memoirs and really this, uh, this first book, I'll share some things with you from both books, Gone Viking, A Travel Saga, and Gone Viking 2, Beyond Boundaries. And really I started off with the whole premise, and you may be aware of this, but if not, that word Viking was originally a verb. 
It meant to go voyaging. The Scandinavian people would use the term, they would go a Viking or to go Viking. And um, so I'm playing off the fact that Viking originally meant going voyaging. And a lot of those Western European scribes, traditionally it would be monks either around uh, uh, Germany or the UK that began writing about these voyagers, these travelers, capitalized that word into Vikings with a capital V, and we came to use it to label a people. So I spent, uh, as Jacob mentioned, uh, eight years uh, initially traveling around a lot of the northern hemisphere, that top half of the planet, basically trekking after or traveling in the wake or the footsteps of these Scandinavian voyagers. Uh, the Vikings. And um, it was, uh, it, it's been a series of expeditions. I would go travel for one, two, three, four months, come home, do some additional research and writing. And uh, that's what prompted these uh, travel memoirs. Uh, and let's jump into things right off the bat. I'm going to start reading a little bit for you. I've got some fun photos from the expeditions I'll share with you as well as we go. And as Jacob said, Please uh, feel free to ask questions, get them in that chat stream. We'll have lots of chance to, to visit to the best of our ability, a little bit uh, once removed. But yeah, this will be as interactive as you care to make it. And as I say, it's a privilege to be sharing these uh, nonfiction, these very real, very personal stories with you tonight. So I'll start by reading from Gone Viking, a travel saga. And uh, I figure the prologue sets a certain tone and sets the, uh, the, the premise for this whole series of adventures. And the prologue goes like this, and I'm going to use the word skulls with a C, like those slender rowing boats that uh, if you're in Greater Vancouver, you see them around the rowing club and, and uh, going up and down uh, uh, False Creek quite often as well. So here we go, the prologue to Gone Viking, a travel saga. Skulls slice the bay, the softest splash in morning calm. Each stroke of oar swirls water into quotes, grasping at a poem, the reach and pull, a heartbeat. They do that on the Rideau, someone says. A coxswain barks instructions. The boats move on, silent, save for an oarlock creak and gentle ripple of wake. Through this, a bald eagle flies close enough to hear feathers moving air. While at a sculpture park, it states, when you see an eagle, you know this is a special place. Last time I was just taken by the view, it was nighttime. Winter Olympics were here, and we met new friends at the rowing club pub, facing this stretch of water that resembles a thumb on the mitt of the inlet. Large windows and a patio look onto Vancouver's Coal Harbor, cruise ship terminal, and the industrial port's towering cranes. An Olympic cauldron anchored the scene, a pyramid of metallic beams crisscrossed into outsized kindling, a signal beacon burning proud. The fiery glow dampened city lights, leaving only flame visible dancing on dark water, the look of a Viking funeral. Now, for those of you around Greater Vancouver, you probably are familiar, you know that uh, cauldron from our 2010 Winter Olympics, that Jack Poole Plaza. And, um, you know, when, when, when it's dark and uh, the flame is going, it is a striking visual, especially from the head of the inlet right by Stanley Park there. So I'm going to continue reading from Gone Viking, the first book. And um, let's start with this section. It's called Viking, aptly enough. My journey begins with a pint, another pub on a pier, this time seated on a timber dock. Sun's glazing the water, surrounding me in radiance like I'm seated in a forge. Inspiring setting, beautiful day. And I'm formulating a travel plan, a trail north, east and west, envisioning waves and ice and mountains. The scene blurs at the edge like cloud, 
a winding path romantically ambiguous. I think of the far north and shiver. Why leave this idyllic spot to trek some of the world's most inhospitable places? I ask myself this more than once, the one word answer invariably the same, Viking. Through translation and time, the words come to label a people, a capitalized noun outside Scandinavia. But the word was first used by those people, describing the pursuit of wealth or land, legacy building quests known as going a Viking or simply to go Viking. It was a grand tour before rail or the Renaissance, an overseas experience without synthetic packs or Swiss army knives, just wool and fur, wood and iron, axes as tools and weapons, along with the power of sail, oar, and effort. Going Viking was a rite of passage, a drive as strong as a nomad's pull to migrate. Riches from abroad meant power and the ability to write one's saga, tales of conquest and bravery, the result, immortality. Another pint in my plan takes shape, a trailhead at least, pointing me on my way. The journey, after all, being about departure as much as anything, a sense of discovery. Saxons called it Wanderjahr, the equivalent of a student's gap year, travel prior to settling down, education on the road in lieu of a structured workplace. This excursion, evolving as I go, will be my Wanderjahr. Multiple trips over several years, in fact, but a wander all the same, Viking in its truest sense, my trail, a personal saga. So I think this is a good time for me to jump into some uh, photos with you. Now, I, I was asked by someone, uh, I've been privileged to, uh, you know, uh, be at, at Banyan and some other events uh, recently, and someone said, are you going to wear that helmet I've seen you wear on social media? Of course I will. So I've got this knit <laughs> woolen uh, Viking helmet. I think it's historically accurate. It's not, but we can discuss that more later. But there, you know who you are. You've satisfied You've seen me in the helmet. And thank you to my friend, Rita from Burnaby for knitting that fabulous toque slash helmet. So I'm gonna share some photos with you now. Let's uh, just jump into that. I'll go to my screen share and let's see how we go technologically. Oh, this is what we call in the business product placement. And there's the cover of my books bragging about some of the literary awards, but uh, into our photos. So here's a map. I've obviously here's where I am and Jacob and uh, many of us in around Greater Vancouver, but I arbitrarily chose the start of this excursion and what I'm sharing with you this evening from a place in Denmark. It's the Viking Ship Museum. This is in a town called Roskilde in Denmark. It's just outside of Copenhagen, and um, they have a marvelous exhibit there with um, the, it's a, it's a working archeology span anthropology um, a museum. And it's also open to tourists. So it's a very active place. And there was a marvelous map on the wall. And it basically showed where these Scandinavian voyagers, these Vikings came and went and raided and traded and settled. And what amazed me was these arrows and these roots, as you can see me wiggling the mouse around here, it covered the, the, the top half of the planet. So that was really my eureka moment. I thought, oh my goodness, I want to go to there. <laughs> when there is literally all over a great deal of the globe. So let's jump ahead. I'm gonna lower the microscope onto what we might consider some of those key historical areas. If we just lower that in, and there's our Viking ship museum in Denmark. And you can see why so much of this exodus 
would have occurred across that North Sea. We've got Sweden here and, and Norway, and the current up here in the North Sea and North Atlantic, a lot of it goes that sort of uh, east to west. So whether they were sailing or rowing, you know, it's pretty much a beeline to the British Isles there. We think historically a lot of the Norse would have gone to more of these northern islands, what we now consider Scotland and Ireland and Northumbria, but the Danes uh, also uh, um, emigrated to great swaths of the UK. And if we really want to go back historically, here's a fun little exercise. If we imagine just inverting this, what if the green was the water? And what if the blue was the land, which it was um, back in the uh, early Bronze Age, late Stone Ages, this was all connected. So we've got Danes and Angles and Saxons, and it was, these were very uh, common uh, means of transhumans, migration. So when we think of the Angles coming from this part of Europe, and Angoland, right? Danes and Angles and Saxons, uh, making up a great deal of the UK. So I tried to um, emulate or, or, or mimic a lot of those roots. Now, join me, if you will, one of the first historical places, you might be familiar with this, called Lindisfarne. Now, that would literally be just up on that northern uh, English coast, just south of the Scottish border there. And in the year 793, one of the first recorded Viking landings in the British Isles. And you can see this great clump of people, and I'm one of that clump of people. It's a tidal crossing. So uh, twice a day, uh, depending on the tide times, you get these clumps of pilgrims or, or tour buses, and folks scooch out onto this uh, island, uh, uh, Causeway Island, a tidal island, and there's the castle, and then there's a priory as well. Um, and here's just an example. This is St. Michael's Mount, which is down in Cornwall. That's the southwestern corner of, uh, of England. But and here, this photo, it's fairly recent, taken during high tide, but it's this, got this causeway, which reveals itself twice a day. And uh, when the tide is very low, pilgrims can slosh across in bare feet. And it's a very special place. It's a Benedictine Abbey. It's basically a replica. It's much the same as Mont Saint-Michel off the coast of France. And um, here's a fun one that I, ties a lot of things together. So from that St. Michael's Mount, I did a lot of trekking around 100 miles is what I, I trekked on foot around that southwest toe of the UK as part of my Viking uh, excursions. But uh, from St. Michael's Way, you can go over this Penwith Peninsula, Peninsula southwest uh, England. But you might, a lot of you might recognize this scallop shell. This is the insignia of the Camino Way. This uh, English footpath, part of the Pilgrimage Way, does link up with those across European, those Western European uh, routes that could go to that northwest corner of Spain, the Camino. So there are these tributaries all over the way uh, across Western Europe that connect these key pilgrimage sites. This was a key part of my Viking travels when I wasn't in a plane or on a train or in a boat, I was on foot following these kinds of paths. And here's a good example of that down in that southwest corner of England. This is a photo at Carbis Bay. And if that rings a bell, um, just last summer was where they held the, 
the G8 uh, summit and conference. It's a little sleepy uh, seaside town in England. And this is a chunk of old shipwreck. So when tide is low, you see these little bits of what, although that looks like rock, these are also bits of old uh, ship. There's shifting sandy shoals out there and uh, hundreds of ships over the past couple of millennia have been shipwrecked there. This would have been a, like a mid 1800s, so mid 19th century steamer that uh, crashed. And then these bits uh, of, of engine, in this case, it's a bit of boiler from a steam engine, uh, lodged in the sand and they're there, seemingly fairly permanent. And if we were to turn around on this big, wide, gorgeous beach, 180 degrees, oopsie, we're gonna, we would uh, carry on to the Southwest Coast Path, which leads us all the way to that Southwestern toe of England. And what do we got there but Land's End, which to me is very romantic. Now, a lot of these Western European countries, there's Land's End in France, there's Land's End in Spain, beyond that uh, uh, Santiago de Compostela at the end of the Camino Way. And I share this one with you because it brings to our attention these the Longship's Lighthouse and the Isles of Scilly, about 30 nautical miles off the coast of England and uh, basically due south of Ireland. And it's sort of the Celtic Sea is starting to mix with the North Atlantic there. Here's some of that coastline. And these are what they call the Longships and this attractive lighthouse. As I say, again, we're on that Northwest, uh, pardon me, Southwest corner of England, looking North. There's some pretty rugged seascapes, sea caves, gorgeous uh, uh, topography and coastal paths and vistas. This absolutely would have been either an old Celtic standing stone or even a Roman mile marker when they were here uh, for well, basically the, that um, uh, maybe 50 BCE until the fifth uh, century. And um, you can even see from the shoreline why they would have called these rocks the longships in the day when the locals would have been always sort of scouring the horizon to see if folks are coming. They don't know if they're coming for trading or raiding, but always a need for awareness and a watchfulness. There, I am on a boat uh, on my way to the Isles of Scilly, so sailed off uh, from Falmouth, a great historical uh, port on the south coast of Cornwall. This is still in England. And this is a pilot cutter that I'm on here. 54 footer, if for those of you that are sailors in the, in the audience, uh, mahogany and teak, a foresail, uh, uh, mainsail, staysail, topsail and jib. And I was part of a crew of seven. And uh, basically this for me was recreating uh, the uh, watery footsteps of Olaf Crowbone, or Olaf Tryggvason, who became uh, a king of Norway after sort of making his bones, uh, uh, so to speak, around the British Isles. Uh, later on in this journey, I was just on the water for a week in this ship. Uh, we hit a force eight, we were racing ahead of a force eight gale and our mast snapped right here. So we lost our topsail and it flopped there kind of like a surrender sign and uh, we lost our engine as well. So um, some waves were covering the front half of our ship there, and there we were uh, tethered to the deck in survival suits. I'm laughing as though lightheartedly, perhaps it's just nervous recollections because in the moment, uh, 
it, uh, it it was certainly trying and about as adventurous as I choose to, or as, I, as I'm willing to endure. I certainly wouldn't have chosen that given the choice. Having said that, that this is that our little 54 footer, a pilot cutter, meaning uh, it's a, this is a boat was built in the 1970s. It's a replica of a ship from the 1850s. And these would ply the uh, Bristol Channel, literally like a pilot cutter. So they would uh, pilot in the big trading vessels that were coming in from all over the world. So they're built for speed in a pinch. Two people can, can sail it quite effectively. These are on the Isles of Scilly and uh, S-C-I-L-L-Y, if, if you're not familiar with it. But we did have some gorgeous weather, as you can see. This is part of the Gulf Stream. So you get naturally occurring palm trees here in the, in the UK. It's rather magical, but the water is still icy cold as far as I'm concerned from a West Coast Canadian perspective, although folks still swim in there. I, I dipped in there in the, in the middle of summer, right around midsummer, and it was one of the most unpleasant experiences of my life. Having said that, it's still beautiful to look at. Let's go further afield. Let's talk proper Viking, if I can now. Small V and big V. If we carry on from our starting point there in Denmark and around the UK and the Isles of Scilly or right in this area, okay, basically the last stop between Ireland and that, uh, that uh, land's end of Spain down there. Um, let's go to Iceland together. And now I'm basically replicating the footsteps of Eric the Red. He was exiled from Norway, had a squabble with his neighbors, but he wasn't big on conflict resolution. He tended to swing first with his axe and worry about problem solving later. So having taken care of one of his neighbors, disposed of, <laughs> Eric was uh, banished to Iceland. And uh, let's go there together. Here we are in Reykjavik at a place called the Settlement Museum. And this is the Settlement Saga. Um, this is a gorgeous 800-year-old book. I felt very, very fortunate. It was just me in this exhibit room at that time. It was on loan for a short period of time from the university. And um, look at this gorgeous, I mean, the script, the monks, because that's who was writing uh, the, these books in the time. So again, this was started in the 12th century, finished a couple of hundred years later. So, and, and with this ribbon as original would be used as a bookmark, but it looks like it's been typeset. Gorgeous, gorgeous font, what they call that illumination, bit of color with a, like what it's called a drop cap, which is a posh word for a large letter we see at the beginning of a paragraph. Uh, just a spectacular thing. So these are one of the original sagas. The Icelanders were amongst the most prolific writers. So basically, and I don't mean to offend anyone, this is I liken these to a Bible. There's lineage, there's history, there's speculation, there's myth, there's lessons. Um, but uh, the documents themselves tended to be written a couple of hundred years later. So all of these stories were passed on through oral legend. Oftentimes tattoos on uh, individuals would relay these family lineage and stories, but invariably folks would tie back in their bloodlines to the gods. And I find that um, somewhat magical and not unlike the Druids. And it's very, very inspiring. And that's why I tried to emulate facets of that saga writing in my own travel memoir stories. 
And here we are still in Reykjavik, Icelandic capital. This is, yes, a statue of Leif Erikson out front of what's called the Holgrimskirkja, and that's a, 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 a Lutheran church. It's the tallest building in town. It's on a rise in the land, and it really looks like a space shuttle on end. But what I love about this, if you want to sort of talk about um, facets of religion and faith, Iceland converted to Christianity uh, from paganism in the year 1000. Very tidy, turn in the calendar, turn of the national faith. But it was, it was clearly uh, parlayed that folks could worship whoever they wanted to in the privacy of their own home. So it strikes me as very inclusive and um, um, mm -hmm, the, the tolerance and the fact that this Christian church is right near two places called Odensgata and Torsgata, in other words, Odin Street and Thor's Avenue. So uh, tying everything together in a, in a tidy geographical manner there. I'll just share a few around Iceland. Now it's popular, it's easy to get to, even now, obviously, uh, as, as travel restrictions loosen up, many of you might be familiar with this. In Iceland's Gullfoss Falls, um, bigger than Niagara, very, very impressive. And also lots of bubbly mud pits and geysers and such. And in Iceland, uh, literally beneath that uh, island is where the North American and the Eurasian tectonic plates are pulling apart. So you get this remarkable seismic activity and such. In Reykjavik Harbor, now Reykjavik, the word means smoky bay. And um, really what we've got is, uh, it's, I, I think it's a VOG, uh, V-O-G, that volcanic fog you might see around the south of the big island of Hawaii when there's active volcanoes and other parts of the Pacific Rim circle of fire. It's often, it looks cloudy, but it's really this VOG Point being Reykjavik means smoky bay. This is a gorgeous sculpture called the Sun Voyager. And the cool thing about this is it changes in color based on the light of the day from sort of a silvery to a kind of a gold. And it strikes me as sort of like alchemy uh, there on the, on the shores of the harbor. <laughs> this is just a ridiculous photo that I love. This is from the Saga Museum in Reykjavik. And what I like, this is a, 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 a dummy. And next to the dummy, this is a wax mannequin. Okay, pause for laughter and applause. Thank you. No, but seriously, this is me with the, next to a Viking mannequin. And that makes me laugh because our teeth are very, very similar. So perhaps I do have some true Viking blood in my lineage, although I haven't had the test done yet. Let's carry on from Iceland. Following Eric the Red, he has another dispute with another neighbor. <laughs> another neighbor of Eric's is, um, well, dead. Simple as that. And uh, he was banished yet again and goes to South Greenland where he will raise his family, um, daughter and three boys. And we know uh, most famously his daughter Freyas as well as his son Leif Erikson. So let's go there together. We're heading into the uh, southwest, south corner of Greenland. And I'll give you another map picture just to give you a feel for just how rugged this is. It's fjords, it's a tiny sliver of arable land. It abuts right up against glacier. Uh, you can see why it might feel familiar to folks from Norway with these fjords and such. I flew into Nasarsawak and the reason that was the most accessible point for me to go to Eric the Red's farmstead, which is where Leif Erikson was born. Across the way here, this is Eric's Fjord and Einar's Fjord. Across the water, and I trekked across that mountain ridgeland, ridgeline, 
into the next pocket of land, got a boat across the way. Iglaku was um, also called Garder in the day, was the Norse bishopric where they had basically an abbey. And the, this thriving community lasted until early in the 15th century and then was abandoned. So there's a little bit of a mis mystery there and a bit of a, like as we'd see in writing an ellipses, there's sort of a dot, 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 and a whole lot of question marks. Well, let's, this is the aerial view from the plane as I'm flying into Greenland, right? Icebergs, bergy bits breaking off this glacier. You can see inland, it's stark. There's a wonderful quote from a travel writer who I love, and they say, uh, in equal parts, Greenland is terrifying and beautiful. And that's exactly what I felt as I flew in there. It's a bit terrified, but absolute beauty. Here is a replica of Eric the Red's farmstead. Eric and his spouse, Torhilda, this is where they raised their four kids. Pardon me, a replica of that. Here it is. I, I, I like this shot because um, you can see the icebergs right there. This is in the middle of summer. And uh, it is cold and it's intimidating and bleak, but uh, there's still a beauty there. This is pretty decent grazing ground. They raised uh, sheep and such in the day. Here's a close up. This is a little church, a replica of the church that uh, Eric the Red built for Leif's mom, Torhilda. She was Christian, he was not. So uh, Leif Erikson's dad worshiped the old gods. Leif's mom worshiped. Jesus was embraced Christianity, but you see, like, is built of uh, slabs of rock, replicating the brick, sod, turf, and peat. Wood was precious around Greenland. There's no trees to speak of. The odd uh, scrawny rowan tree and the odd weeping willow. So they were reliant on annual ships coming from Europe, from Iceland, and driftwood, and that was uh, they would uh, build a settlement where things would accumulate. So when you're sailing, you throw a piece of wood in the water. This is an old mariner's trick. And you watch to see where it lands on shore. And you can follow currents and tides and uh, increase your likelihood of accumulating some precious, precious driftwood, not only for building and repairing ships, for travel and hunting and fishing, but shelter, burning in the winter for heat. Um, wood was probably one of the most precious commodities next to uh, food. And just up the hill from the farmstead, this is a statue of Leif Erikson. Leif, of course, tends to get uh, a top billing and um, more so than uh, Eric the Red with his violent past. Leif seemed to take over after his mom. Uh, he was Christian and uh, as well as going a Viking to explore and, and settle, they were all often looking for converting um, what they'd consider heathens or pagans. That was often part of their journeys at that time from the year 1000 onwards. And here I am on a 1940s boat, mostly wood, built like an ark, big reinforced uh, bulbous hull, not unlike Roald Amundsen's uh, boat, the Fram, that he sailed around both North and South Poles. And um, this is just us sailing through some of those fjords I showed you on the earlier slide on the map. And I could just spend a day looking at these icebergs, like cloud gazing, kind of magical, really places where they're massive and you see the colors and uh, yeah, true blue and this and that. This is the hook on, on the ship is either we were pulling up against or pushing off 
some of these icebergs, they used to use the term bergy bits and growlers based on their size and shape. But again, gorgeous conditions. And what you do is, uh, this is a, with a bucket and a rope, pulled up a teeny little bit of ice from the sea. So I got some 10 year old booze with 1 million year old ice from the glacier. And uh, what's rather fun is the things that gave those icebergs their color is this ice is full of oxygen. And you can honestly see at times every color of the rainbow in this glacial ice. So it's fully oxygenated. You let a bit of this natural glacial ice melt and it releases the oxygen and it carbonates your drink. And you put your ear up to it and you hear it fizzy, uh, fizzing. <laughs> and it's one of the neatest little scientific things, more fun than baking soda and, uh, and vinegar. And there I am enjoying my drink. I show you this one, the glaciers back there. I show you this to give you a feel for, I'm wearing everything out of my backpack here. You see, I got a toque over my cap. I got five layers there, double pants, beautiful day, and I am still freezing. It is very, very icy. We better just follow now from Eric the Red and Leif Erikson's birthplace. We, we got to do justice and go to Vinland here. We were fairly confident that Leif went to Baffin Island, probably, and um, Labrador, and then made that settlement at that extreme northwestern tipper corner of Newfoundland. And there's enough archaeological evidence that we know darn well that the Norse were there. There was iron smelting facilities. So that's where I went. Here's a, the rugged Atlantic coast of Newfoundland, iceberg in there. This is still the middle of June, when, but uh, just around the corner, again in Newfoundland, gorgeous pristine beaches. To us, West Coast Canada, it felt to me very not unlike Tofino or even that Oregon coast. You can see it just be so ideal to land a long ship on a place like that. And from there, this around the corner, uh, more or less, from Leaf's uh, settlement at Lansau Meadows, Newfoundland, this is Port Anthony. Look at this middle of June, packed with ice. Now, this is a fishing community, also reliant on tourism. So this was a real concern. I mean, um, we weren't sure if they were uh, going to have a season, uh, as it were. So uh, beautiful as it is, that was a troubling, a stressful uh, one. This is what Leif Erikson's settlement looks like now. It's melted back to the ground because it was turf and wood. Uh, and so it just bumps in the ground now. But this is what it was like when they built it. Uh, right around the year 1000. Sod, peat, turf, a little bit of precious wood for the chimneys and a lintel. And they figured this long house, a little bit of pen would have been for uh, wildlife. Uh, maybe 60 to 90 folks uh, lived in this settlement, five full winters, so five years in Newfoundland. And a, and a river runs up just off, off the, out of the shot here. And uh, one of the things that's documented in the sagas is although these were, um, you know, experienced, well-traveled, knowledgeable um, anglers, fishers, hunters, um, it's documented they'd never seen salmon so big as they saw in Newfoundland. And of course, some of the game was very new to them. They came from a place of reindeer, but all of a sudden these caribou and elk and moose were seemingly like a monstrous uh, as well. I share this one with you because it made me laugh. When we were, this was in a rental car, driving north, on the Viking Trail through Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, punched in the coordinates. And it just said, take your next right 
in 400 kilometers. That was the next fork in the road. So if you've done it, you know it. If you're planning on doing it, it's a great big landmass, Newfoundland, beautiful, welcoming, and you allow lots of time. And of course, I had a chum in, in the UK share this one with me, someone customizing their vehicle with a Viking head. And of course, I have to share with you a Gary Larson Farside, where he says the Viking long car was once the scourge of European roadways. And of course, his dragon-headed long car has the bumper sticker, I don't break for Saxons, as only Gary Larson could do. And I conclude that with the... Now, Jacob, you may have seen, shared this online as part of our uh, planning and promotion and preparation for tonight. And you see this, and you can probably tell all of these statues of uh, Leif Erikson. You can tell I took these photos in the autumn. And you know why? Because you can tell when the leaves are turning red. Oh dear. And this is the, there's some more product placement. I'm sure this is the stage of the evening when you're thinking to yourself, oh, with those jokes, can we get our money back? No, you, you can't. <laughs> I will give you a little more reading before we open things up to some Q&A and get Jacob to join us back on screen again. I may as well jump into um, a little bit of Gone Viking 2, Beyond Boundaries, where I, I start the second book with the epilogue from the first book. And it goes like this, an epilogue to Gone Viking, a travel saga, kicking off Gone Viking 2, Beyond Boundaries. And you'll see um, welcoming questions as we go. Please feel free to jump in. Let me share this passage with you from Gone Viking 2, Beyond Boundaries. Back home, following eight years of travel, exploration, and research, eight years of Viking or voyaging the Northern Hemisphere in the wake of some of the world's most adventurous explorers, I was enjoying a Vancouver view, water, mountains, the bustle of tugs, tankers, and helijets, all plying sea and sky. Hillside homes reflected sun in bursts of fiery gold, and beyond the bay where inlet sprawls into ocean, bulkers glowed in morning light. Moored sailboats pinged the rhythmic and nautical tintinabulation, a toe-tapping score as a solitary freighter slid west beneath the big green bridge, bound for who knows where, maybe Avalon, over the pole, Icelandic horses were changing color with the season, akin to amber leaves now littering the city. And I thought of a sign that resonated on Haida Gwaii, hidden in forest. Do not look back, it read. There is much more to see, feel, and love. While a bench in a park near our home is embossed with a plaque that states, if you're going to look back, laugh. So I think that's a, a good amount of, of reading and photos. Now, I'm going to welcome Jacob back and uh, see if we've got any questions. We'll open it up to that. All right. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of questions. So, um, Heather wrote, uh, she was wondering, what was the wooden structure in the site in Greenland with the church? It looked like an entry arbor of sorts. Was it decorative or did it have a practical function? Um, I... I, 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 it's not clearly defined. So I've got a theory on that. Traditionally in the old um, pagan Viking longhouses, that lintel was, was a key um, structure. They would literally use it and perhaps raise someone to look beyond from outwards to in, and they would use it for some of their pagan rituals. Um, a seer uh, could be looking into the afterlife or catching a glimpse of Valhalla. And so there was a lot of sim symbolism behind that. 
obviously that wasn't the premise for this Christian uh, structure. So I think it transitioned more to um, decorative, um, but there's also, I, they may well have like uh, done some sort of a cleansing prior to crossing that threshold. That little chapel is weensy, like, you know, maybe Torhilda and the kids could have squeezed in there for like a little reading or service or prayer. Uh, it wasn't like a place where you're going to have a congregation. So it's probably decorative, but part of me thinks it's a nod to the old ways. It, 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 there's a great story from the sagas that Eric the Red and Torhilda, the spouses, quibbled and quabbled over that. She wanted a church. And he didn't buy into it. And uh, in the sagas, it says, she said, oh, okay, if you don't build me a church, you're never welcome back to bed again. And to which he promptly built her a church. So it's, it's, it almost smacks of a sitcom, but apparently this is how it played out. So part of me thinks, did he build the church, but with a little bit of a, a nod to the old gods? Not really sure. So it, it's all speculation, but we know from the old ground posts and, and the lumps and the archaeologically, it looked pretty much like that a thousand years ago. Long answer without a clear answer, but thank you for that question. Thank you. Um, uh, Hoda um, was just commenting that that, that she was uh, she was in in the visited the northern Labrador villages, cool. and uh, and uh, she 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 just commented that, uh, that they were very impressive. <laughs> it's a beautiful part of the world, and we had this serendipitous experience. My wife and I at a little restaurant there. So George Decker was the name of the, the, the local fisherman in the 1950s. He steered the Norwegian uh, couples, uh, Ingsteads, to um, the, the site of what they later archaeologically realized was Leif Erikson's settlement. Um, the locals there thought it was probably a, like an indigenous um, site, Beatuk or Micmac. But then when they realized oh, no, there, was a, there was a Norse brooch pin and um, like I say, a clear iron smelting facility, they realized, oh, that was a site. So my long winded backstory um, is the fact that at this restaurant, we're visiting with a local and she was the granddaughter of uh, George Decker. She said, yeah, grandpa always talked about when those modern day Vikings came. And so it, historically, it was a bit of a, a watershed and just making that connection in present day uh, felt serendipitous and extra special. But I agree, it is a gorgeous part of the planet. Um, there's a question about uh, the, the pagan traditions uh, and if they persist or what exactly were, they, were the Vikings practicing in their spiritual? It sounds like there was a mix of Christianity uh, at some point and... Yeah, um, it's an interesting transition. So if we think of the Scandinavian countries, and depending on who you ask, you get different answers, more or less. I think technically, it's Denmark and Norway and Sweden, but Iceland and Finland are often categorized. Point being, Christianity was sweeping Western Europe in the 10th century. Um, uh, and King Harold Bluetooth, King of Denmark was a great example uh, in the late 900s. It was very clear to him, why in heaven's name would we fight? Like no one wants to waste life resources on warfare unnecessarily. 
so Denmark was sort of ahead of the curve. They embraced Christianity. It was the official religion, um, but it was as much a political move as anything. Um, and, and, but again, it was like one of those ones, hey, you know, you worship who you choose to, just don't make a big deal about it. We're Christian officially. So no other Christian uh, nation or a king or warlord is chances are probably they're probably not going to look to invade because often invasions were under the guise of oh, we got to save souls but invariably it was linked to uh, good trade routes or good resources stuff like that Norway jumped on board as well late in the 10th century and as I said Iceland they did it at what they called the all thing the thing where they would literally meet like a legislative assembly and in the year 1000 they said the country is officially Christian Sweden, however, is a great example. They held on to the pagan ways officially for another two centuries before they sort of got on board with uh, what was clearly a trend. And do, do the, some of the original pagan traditions persist at all or have they? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, there are midsummer festivals that happen all over the place. I, I got in on a midsummer uh, uh, festival in the UK where that's a very pagan um, uh, thing. Now, mine was just a bunch of individuals watching a gorgeous sunset, the first one of summer, the last one of you know, the, the, the solstice or the equinox, <laughs> pardon me, so the summer solstice is what it was. Um, but we were just uh, admiring nature, but some folks would, would, you know, might dance around like druids and clothing optional and, and treat it like a proper old school uh, a pagan druidic rite, R-I-T-E. Um, but a, there's a wonderful Icelandic expression where they still to this day, many of them say, why disbelieve anything? It could all be true. And um, there have been roadways in Iceland that they will divert around the places where the huldefolk, the hidden people um, are believed to inhabit. And there's a great story of laying track for a, a highway and there's a big old rock and people knew it was occupied by the spirits. Well, some, you know, this is still progress and, and machinery, every piece of machinery that they brought to take down that rock broke down. Again, again, and again. And then the engineers said, the heck with that. And they rerouted the road. Why disbelieve anything? So there are still lots of things where folks are, are, are very comfy maintaining facets of that. Um, like I say, I love that that Christian church is just across the street from Odin's Street and Tor Avenue, <laughs> Thor's Road, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned a phrase, uh, I think I, I heard this correctly, you said, making my bones for me. Yeah, what is that? Oh, earning your stripes. Um, uh, uh, that was modern vernacular, but it does come from an old, uh, uh, I don't know the origins um, uh, of that of that word. Okay. I thought uh, it might be like a Viking phrase or something. Etymology, I'm ignorant. I used jargon, but but the idea being um, in the day, if, if you could do something that would warrant, and Jacob, you and I know both songwriters, if a bard wants to write about you, or create a poem or sing about you, you've done something worthy. <laughs> that was, um, and uh, often a, a motivator for, for, yeah, for immortality. But basically it just meant going abroad to earn your keep. Now, 
generally speaking in Scandinavia, these were prosperous, healthy, growing nations that were running out of arable land. So a lot of these young explorers, a majority for a spell would have been male, going abroad, um, uh, looking for a new place to emigrate, maybe find, um, create a, a home, make a family, maybe get some wealth, that kind of a thing. But it was very much, uh, there, was a, there was a great deal of gender equality amongst many of the nations comparatively at that time. So you would have women and men sailing elsewhere to make a new life and find new arable uh, land and make a, make a living. Immigration, no different than we see today all over the world. Thank you. Um, there was a question from Robert. Uh, what was your most challenging experience during your travels? Mm -hmm. To Robert, thank you. The, 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 the time on the pilot cutter when we lost the sail and the engine, uh, that was, I, I'm a novice on a uh, sailor and trying to remember knots as you're being bucketed with seawater um, we were never too far from land. Um, I, I didn't for a moment think we were going to die, but it was very intimidating. And um, that, that, that was, uh, was an interesting one. And then another uh, entirely on my own, having to trek over the, that ridgeline in, in, in Greenland uh, that I spoke of to get uh, um, to what was that bishopric. Uh, a boat takes you only so far then you're on your own. And I mean, on your own. So I did a, a proper trek and you're very cognizant, feeling utterly, you have to be self-reliant. You know, you're taking care not to turn an ankle, that kind of a thing. Um, but again, that terrifying and beautiful <laughs> in equal measure um, and utterly worthwhile. There, there's an old, another old uh, travel literature quote. Uh, it says, once you've seen the world, there's always Greenland. And at first it, it struck me as a, does that, that feel like a little pretentious if I even say that line? But the fact of the matter is it still kind of gave me, uh, you know, shivers thinking about that. And I did have some spectacular uh, experiences there, but that was demanding that I felt uh, uh, no, no margin for error. I'm not a mountain climber, but that to me was, uh, it pushed my limits somewhat. Well, that's extraordinary. I don't think I, I know that I've never been that remote or alone. That's a pretty interesting experience. Um, uh, Anne asked, uh, what's the weirdest piece of Viking history or trivia you've learned? <laughs> uh, at, the, at the risk of being vulgar, I got to bring it back to York in the UK. And if you know that community, it's roughly in the center of Britain, but it's northern England, more or less. And it was definitely the Viking capital of uh uh, of Britain for uh, and uh, um, whether or not you watch a Viking TV series, um, Ivar the Boneless, one of uh, uh, Ragnar Lothbrok's uh, offspring, uh, ran that uh, community. So York for a number of years. It's a spectacular historical town, um, and uh, but there's great Viking history there specifically, and uh, one of the exhibits sponsored by Lloyds of London, is a piece of poo that archaeologists have pulled from a midden. And as silly as it may sound, you know, historically, we can glean a lot from culture, uh, um, hygiene, crops, 
animal husbandry and this and that by looking at a piece of poop. So there is an exhibit there, prominent underlights, sponsored by Lloyd's Bank. And of course, it's called the Lloyd's Bank Turd. <laughs> it was surreal because I, I'm on my own, but I am sort of adjacent to a bit of a group. And I had this moment where I realized, good Lord, there's a group of us that have traveled across the world and we're standing around looking at something that should be flushed. But of course, we're analyzing it. So it's something very, very special. There, there, there it is. I've said it. That's the oddest one. Uh, it's historically significant, but you don't stop to think about it too, too much. <laughs> Sounds like a, like it could be an avant-garde uh, artwork or something. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, <laughs> uh, Melico is wondering about uh, um, if there's any in uh, interesting food or unusual foods that you've yeah, and uh, again, with Iceland being so accessible now, many folks are getting this access to this kind of experience. I did a little um, a Viking food tour around uh, the Reykjavik region, and one you'll see on travel shows as well, the Greenlandic shark. Now, this is, it was historically significant. You catch one of these things, it's the size of a whale shark, like, an, like the size of an orca, but it's, um, it's sort of an omnivorous fish just got teeth they eat anything and everything if an angler if a fisher person uh, lands one of these things you know you can feed the village for a while but they would air dry these things uh, first off they would bury it and then some of its toxins would come out so it's basically rotting as it's tenderizing under the earth then they hang it and dry it for several months or and they still do this historically chop it up feed it to the tourists, <laughs> and um, that was unlike anything, you can always liken it, oh, is it like chicken? <laughs> this was just like chewing away on fishy gum, and it never, ever gives. After you get tired or bored, you swallow it. Usually, folks are, are taking it with, 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 a, with a shot of booze, because it kind of kills the taste, um, but that air-dried fermented Greenlandic shark was an odd one. A common tasty one that we're not, many of us aren't used to was horse meat. That was, um, which, you know, however we, we, you know, we view different things differently in different parts of the world. But that, taking it back to the earlier question, that was considered heathenism. That was a pagan practice eating horse meat, but uh, it's still very much a thing there. Yeah. Um, uh, I had a question. What was it? Oh, right. I, I had read, um, I remember reading some time ago, it was like a book called Eyewitness to History. And it was like firsthand accounts of things that happened and uh, from eyewitnesses. And there was one description of like a, a Viking, like a human sacrifice. And they were, they sacrificed somebody and then they pushed them out to the in the water. And there was this whole kind of ceremony and it was like quite terrifying actually the whole description but uh i'm just curious like, if you've read about or know about that and, and what they were doing why, why they were what that meant yeah there's quite a few uh, interesting examples um ahmed ibn fadlan um an arabic scribe very well traveled some of our best historical references to vikings um, he documents some of that stuff. It, to me, part of me questions 
like sacrifice a lot of this then would have been written about again later hearsay by christian monks where their whole rationale behind afterlife and soul and spirit and um heaven and and, and um would be very different than a pagan perspective and i can't help but think that many of those people that were being sacrificed were all too happy to be chosen to have a fast track to their uh, good place as it were or to accompany perhaps queens and kings into valhalla so there are these kinds of things um often soldiers along with livestock at Uppsala they would have these uh, um, these rites these ceremonies every few years where they'd be hung from the trees it was very honorable uh, parents if oh if one of your offspring was chosen to be amongst the sacrificed uh, it, uh, it it reflected very well on the house and the lineage so there are these kinds of things um, another good example is there's a classic grave where we've, we've revealed two women's uh, the remains of two women and um, one older one younger and we're not really sure yet if the younger was royalty and the older might have been an attendant or uh, vice versa and um, then it brings into question well did they pass at the same time or was their dear friend and companion um, did they opt to join them on their and we're seeing now lots of evidence now where there might be burning and burying, like a, a sort of a, a hybrid type of interment. Interesting. Um, so just one last question, because we're getting uh, to the time, but um, I, I was curious where your interest in this originated. Like, was this something you were always like passionate about or something piqued your interest? Or? It, uh, I had just been, I had been uh, travel, uh, writer for some time and um, but that my eureka moment was in that viking ship museum in Roskilde in denmark when i saw that world map and i thought oh wow a, a person could spend their life just tracking and plotting these places and visiting these wonderful historic sites all over the northern hemisphere and still just be scratching the surface uh, from a research and sightseeing perspective and then making it as adventurous as you choose to embrace. That was the, that was the moment. And just being a water baby uh, from the West Coast and loving getting onto any sort of craft on the water. Um, and, you know, there's probably that inner child in me that always thinks, hey, you know, if I can't be an astronaut or a race car driver, maybe I can still be a Viking. <laughs> you know, when you, when you were just speaking and you were describing how um, the, the land masses used to be connected, and you'd said, uh, well, what if they were connected? That's kind of how you phrased it before you mm -hmm. described. And it, <clears throat> I had this sort of like little light bulb moment when you, because um, I realized uh, in that moment that even today, like the, they were masters of the sea, right? And, and sailing. Mm -hmm. So in a way, like the lands were connected because they were so comfortable with the, with the waterways. Mm -hmm. And um, you can even see that with some of the old maps. They looked at the water as roadways. Right. Those were that was that was the joining means. That wasn't the great blue yonder. Right. That was the roadway. Um, that was it was as as familiar or natural as us taking the <laughs> Trans Canada.
Yeah, and so watching your presentation, I really could see like when you were like that the map which you showed was like all oh, this northern region, right? And I'm so used to seeing you know the map of like you know the equator kind of view, and it's like they're seeing the world from the water and from this very northern spot, and uh, and connecting across like the the ocean. Uh, so it's like a whole different uh, view of the world, actually. Yes, I had another moment like that. There's a museum called the Kelvin Grove in Glasgow old Norse Norwegian map, where that's the center of the world and everything fanned out. Shetland, Faroes, Iceland. Um, it, that was, of course, the perspective. If you were standing on a shore in southwest Norway, that's how you think of it, rather than the North Pole the, and down right. from this. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So fascinating. So um, I want to just thank you so much. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. And um, this has been quite a journey uh, into the world of the Vikings. And um, uh, it's, it's, um, it's been kind of an interesting couple of years without so much travel. So it's kind of exciting to get a travel vision. And um, I want to just remind everyone, the books Gone Viking 1 and Gone Viking 2 are available from Banyan, banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. And you can learn more about uh, Bill's work at billarnotaps.wordpress.com. So just on behalf of Banyan Books, thank you all for coming tonight. And thank you, Bill. And uh, Jacob, I'll make anyone an offer if they find a copy that they're at Banyan that they're excited about and they're local. Do not hesitate to reach out. I'd be thrilled to get a signature in there for you as well. And uh, because, as you know, Banyan Books and Sound is one of my favorite stores. And I also say thanks for everyone that's been here tonight and for making me feel so welcome, Jacob. Thank you. That's a generous offer. Yeah. So have a good night, everyone. And thanks. thanks. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.